Please turn to uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis, uh, as we continue our series in Genesis, uh, to chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 11, 1 through 9. Could we please rise for the reading of God's word? Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everybody. Uh, Today marks the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And uh, before we continue, I just wanted to um, read a few uh, facts. Um, September 11, 2001 resulted in the largest loss of life from a foreign attack on American soil, uh, far more than Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, including civilians, we lost 2,403 people. It took 99 days until December 19, 2001, for the fires at Ground Zero to be extinguished. Cleanup at Ground Zero wasn't officially completed until May 30th of 2002. It took 3.1 million hours of labor to clean up 1.8 million tons of debris at a total cost of of cleanup at uh, $750 million. There were 20 people pulled from the rubble in the two days after the attack. On the day following the attacks, 11 people were rescued from the wreckage, including six firefighters and three police officers. Two Port Authority police officers were also rescued after spending nearly 24 hours beneath 30 feet of rubble. The total number of 9-11 victims rose to 2,752 people in January 2009 when the New York City Medical Examiner's Office ruled that Leon Hayward, who died uh, the previous year of lymphoma and lung disease, was a homicide victim because he was caught in the toxic dust cloud just after the towers collapsed. In 2010, Congress created the WTC Health Program to provide medical monitoring and treatment for emergency responders, recovering cleanup workers, and volunteers who helped after the terrorist attacks. As of 2015, the number of ground zero responders and others afflicted with 9-11 linked cancers has hit 3,700 people. Those suffering cancer certified by the WTC health program include 1,100 members of the New York Fire Department, 
2,134 police and first responders, and 467 survivors such as downtown workers and residents. More have, many have more than one type of cancer. Most of the steel from the World Trade Center wreckage was sent to New Jersey salvage yards, salvage yards where it was broken down and sent all over the world for reuse. Nearly 350,000 tons of the steel was sent to be reused in small and large scale tributes, including 7.5 tons for use in the Navy battleship USS New York. For the first time in history, all non-emergency civilian aircraft in the United States were grounded for three days. The lack of condensation trails, what we call contrails, from jet aircraft caused the average temperature across the U.S. to rise by an average of 3.24 degrees. A longitudinal study of 38 women who were pregnant on 9-11 and were either at or near the World Trade Center at the time of the attack found that those who developed post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, following exposure to the attacks had significantly lower cortisol levels in their saliva than those who were similarly exposed but did not develop PTSD. The children of the women who were traumatized as a result of 9-11 subsequently exhibited an increased distressed response when shown novel stimuli, suggesting that effects of the trauma were passed on to the children prior to birth. On September 13th, a worker at the site, Frank Seleka, discovered a 20-foot cross of two steel beams among the debris. The, be the beams were dubbed the Ground Zero Cross and became a spiritual symbol for families of the victims and workers who cleaned up the debris. At this time, we're going to have a moment of silence and prayer. Uh, and afterwards, I'm going to read a prayer by Scotty Smith. But at this time, let us hold a moment of silence. Dear Jesus, it's the day on our calendar that now has its own dark branding, 9-11. There have been many days in history that stand out as graphic reminders of their pervasive brokenness of the world, of just how far we've fallen and just how fully the peace of creation has been violated by sin and death. But in our lifetime, no day in American history tells that story more clearly than September 11. We'll never forget how it felt watching the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center crumble to the earth. It was chilling, frightful, and surreal. But as we remember that day of extreme terror and trauma, we also choose to remember you, Jesus. Otherwise, we would stew in despair or simply be driven to rage. Lord Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace, the archetypal peacemaker. You are the one who has come to make all things new, to restore broken things, to bring creation delight from old creation decay. Your death on the cross was the ultimate sowing of peace. 
As you died, taking the judgment we deserve, you were planted as the very seed that has secured an eternal harvest of righteousness. Your death was the death of death itself and the promise of eternal shalom. Because of you, terror is terrified. Indeed, because of you, one day there will be no terror or tears. There will be no more brokenness or barrenness, no more heartaches or even heartburn, no more human trafficking or even human tooth decay, no more war or even aggravation, no more evil or even envy, no more poverty or even pouting, no more not yet, not enough, or not now. Our labors in you, King Jesus, are not in vain. Because of you, we can and must live as peacemakers, sowing the peace of the gospel of the kingdom with the absolute assurance that our harvest of righteousness is being raised and will be reaped. We praise you that your name is Redeemer, Reconciler, and Restorer. We cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Until that day, give us all the mercy, grace, and peace we need for this day. We pray with joy and hope, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's not by, uh, on purpose, I'm just going down Genesis, and, you know, it was time that we talk about the Tower of Babel, but it happens to fall on September 11th. I thought that was very, that was pretty incredible. Uh, But I think many of us know someone or know of someone that was involved and I think we take this time to gather to remember uh, those that are fallen, but also remember that God is sovereign and that healing and salvation can only come through him, only come through Jesus. And that's why we go out. That's why we go out and proclaim the good news. That's why we do the work that we do for either social justice or, you know, last week we had... Um, a guest whose heart is for evangelism for the lost and you know he was so passionate we had i think the longest service ever in our em um you know i was listening to it and i was telling the person that was recording we have to cut these parts out because the actual podcast was an hour 20 minutes it's like no we got to cut that out and we edited it so that just the core of the message was there and there are people that are so passionate that, uh, you know, God has given them this passion to be an evangelist or a pastor or a teacher. And so we have been really graced with a lot of people sharing a lot of good stuff with our congregation. And it's because he wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. But he also wants us to be his hands and feet out in the world, especially because there's so much pain especially because we also know of some of that pain. And, um, you know, we're going to, I believe God has a great plan for us, and it's exciting. Um, it's sometimes daunting uh, thinking about it, but it is exciting, and that we really have to just place our trust in Him. And God will lead us, and He will teach us, and He will show us, and we can obey and bring glory to Him. 
I do have three points about the Tower of Babel, or as I called it today, the curse. And that is, number one, it's irony. The first point is irony. The second point is curse. And the third point is reversal. The irony, curse, and reversal. After God saved Noah from and his family from the flood, he gave them the same commission that he gave to Adam and Eve, which was he was essentially starting over. And he gave this commission in Genesis chapter 9. We read it, be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. You know, when God gives a command or God gives us something to obey, whose good is it for? And we really have to think about that. Is it really a drag to follow God? Or did God put this plan into place so that we flourish we become good. We actually benefit and our purpose is fulfilled. And then the irony happens. In verse 3, they say to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. You know, science and technology. That's what verse 3 is about. Science and technology, I, I love science and technology. And a lot of times I'll, I'll say something and it'll be about science or technology. Newfound tech and science is very exciting. But what is the purpose of, excuse me, what's the purpose of science and technology? Isn't it to help us fulfill the purpose that God has for us? What's the purpose of science and technology? Isn't it so that it can help us? Help us how? It should help us to fulfill the purpose God has for us, the purpose God created us to be. And so we have science and technology. Some people think it's to make life easier, but actually it's not. Because if it was simply to make life easier and your life was more horrible because it was easier, we actually don't want that tech. We don't like that science, right? But science and technology was there to help us fulfill the purpose that God has created us to have. And that is why when the new iPhone is announced, who is the most excited? Who sits in front of his computer and like watches the entire keynote address? That's right, someone here. Not me, someone else here, right? No, I watched it. Um, and we really enjoy this, but this is what happens. There is excitement. Just as when in the, in the Hebrew, when this is written, come, let us make bricks, that word come is an excitement. It's like, let's gather together. I'm excited. Let's do this. It's like when we say, come, let's practice for football, and everybody's excited. It's that kind of excitement. And people, when they had new science and tech, there was excitement. Why? And you have to see why. There was excitement because they used science and tech. Instead of fulfilling God's purpose for us, they used the science and tech to go against God. To go against God. And one of the I mentioned this a few weeks ago, one of the most intriguing things to me is when we have a discovery, either in science or technology, we have a discovery, one of the more intriguing things to me is how people respond, how people respond. So 
I think some of you, hopefully many of you, have heard about the John Hopkins University report on, you know, homosexuality. Is it in, in the genes? Is, not, is it not genetic? And they, uh, they provided a 143-page report. What really surprised me is that no new major news outlet picks that up. And this is groundbreaking studies, people that have taken it, and no, new, no big major news outlets pick it up. And to me, that's very intriguing. It's very interesting. Because the findings say that homosexuality isn't genetic. In fact, there's no scientific evidence for that. And they go on through not just other studies, but they do their own research and their own studies, and they write about the studies. And so me, I'm very excited about that. So I would do, you know, I would check other places. I would check um, LGBT, T, 2S, QQ, um, AA, GNC. See, you're not as cool as me. I, I know every single one. If, if I were to name it, I, th I, I think I pretty much could. Um, but anyway, the 2S is the most interesting. It's called Two-Spirit. It's from Native Americans, and they just decided to add that in. That was pretty awesome. But uh, all joking aside, we would take all these different camps and see how they responded to this. And a lot of people are saying, you know, some, some people are saying this is, this is such hate. This is this discrimination. This is something that will bring forth a lot of, you know, crime, hate crimes, things like that. And people just wish, the, people are wishing that this report would go away. And to me, that really is intriguing. Because when a scientific uh, research report is published or taken out, what they are doing is they're putting it out there for peer review. Peer review means other scientists, other scholars, they take that and they test it. They test it to see if it's good or not. And a lot of people's hopes and wishes is that this doesn't even get peer review. Why is that the case? Why wouldn't you want any kind of medical uh, research not get peer review? And perhaps it's because once it's peer reviewed, then it's put in the medical journal. And once it's in the medical journal, it's in print. And then it's solid. This is scientific evidence. And then we see that as pretty much scientific fact. And so people don't even want to test it. Very scared, that kind of issue. But just as I think every part of the spectrum of our society, if it is science, if it is technology, I think we should put it to the test, no matter what it is. And if that leads us to a place of hate, if it leads us to a place of discrimination, if it leads us to a place where we call the other something lesser than us, then it's wrong. Biblically, it's always wrong. It's always wrong. But if we're afraid to even research that, isn't it because of fear? Isn't it because of fear that you want everything to bend toward you? So you have this spectrum of what you believe to be the truth, but you don't want any testing at all. And so I believe this is the truth. I believe this to be the way. And I don't want anybody to tell me otherwise, and I will have, accept nothing else. No other outcome is acceptable. This is the same kind of hubris that the people in Babel or Shinar had. What they did was they found this newfound technology, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to go against God. They wanted to go specifically against God because what happens? You know, we can kind of relate. I want legacy. I want to be remembered. How am I remembered? Because my life on earth is so short. How am I going to be remembered? 
So what do you do? You make monuments. You do certain things that make you into a legend. Um, and it's actually a compliment when we call each other this person is a legend. Actually, we don't do it here, but I heard it a lot from Ben Jack. Every time he met someone, he would tell, I would ask, oh, who are you meeting today? And he'd be like, oh, I'm meeting you know, Crystal. She's a legend. I was like, really? She's a legend? No, I'm just kidding. You know, like, you're awesome. But he, he would say that. He's like, Crystal is a legend. I was like, why? What did she do? Uh, she took me to this nice lunch place. I was like, oh, very legendary. Very good, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we would kind of joke. But we have this in us this hubris in us that we want to be remembered, we want to be placed on high. And that's the irony. What was supposed to help us fulfill our purpose, what we are going to do is we're going to take science and tech and we're going to say we don't need God anymore. Let me continue on. There are some people that can't get rid of their phones, right? You always have to constantly look at it, no matter where you are. Even if it's like a quiet time or sermon, you know you should put it down, but it's just in your hand. I'll put it on the side. I'll flip it over, but it's in your hand, right? This science and tech, what is it really showing? It shows us how connected we are to Babel. We are so connected to Babel, all of us. I'm not, I'm not trying to point any fingers here. All of us. I'm not saying this community, that community. I'm talking about humanity. We are connected to Babel in a deep, profound way where we want something more than what God has to offer. And that is what we call hubris. That is what we call pride. And the ironic part is this. They built this massive tower to say, I'm going to reach the heavens. I'm going to go so high so that I can be as high as God. I'm going to be remembered. I'm going to be a legend. And they built it as high as they could, and scholars now say it was about 300 feet, which is like 30 stories, which is like my apartment building, that kind of high. It's not high at all. And that's the ironic thing. What we think is so grandiose, so amazing. When we look back on it, it's so small. It's so small that this is the flip side of the irony. When God saw what was going on, he had to come down. The building was so low, he had to come down to look. He said, let's go down and look what they're doing. Because the building was so low. No matter how high we think we can go, do you honestly think we can reach the heights of God? And a lot of people are like, yes, we can. And it shows in our actions, in what we hold on to, in what we say, this is it, this is my paradigm, this is what I believe to be the truth, no peer review, no nothing, this is what I'm going to do. Let no one challenge this thought. And this is what we need to be challenged by, especially as Christians. You know, when we take this book are we letting it review our lifestyle, the way we think, how we pray, and how we act? Or are we just going to pick some verses here and there and just be like, oh, yes, yes, I should do this. Oh, yes, I should do this. See, it's, it's written here. But we're going to take the whole of the book. I'm going to reject some of these parts, but I'm, I'm going to take some of these parts. So even then... I will only pick and choose whenever science benefits me. I will only pick and choose when tech benefits me. Instead of remembering and realizing that we were made for a purpose, and if we do not fulfill that purpose, then we are robbed. We are robbed of that joy. 
that fulfillment that God has for us. That is the irony. The irony is that how, no matter how magnificent science and tech is or was, God had to descend. People were excited, like, oh, man, let's build. Instead of stone, we got brick, you know. Instead of these flip phones, we got the smartphone, smarter than me, that kind of thing. But God had to descend. Let's point his curse. And this is so, so interesting to me, is that the people were united. And usually we think of unity as a good thing, right? But here, unity is not shown as necessarily a good thing. It's just shown as a thing. And I believe that unity is just a thing. It's like a hammer. I can use it for good, and I can use it for evil. I can hammer some nails in, or I can whack someone in the head and then go to jail, right? That kind of thing. In the same way, unity, people always think it's this intrinsically good thing. But here we see that unity, one people speaking one language, is a powerful, powerful tool. So powerful that God would say, it's as if nothing will stop them. They are so united. And was God afraid of their unity? Was God afraid that that whole 30-story building would overtake him? That's a little absurd. The answer is no, obviously. But what is God really saying when he's saying that it's as if nothing will be impossible for them? God is saying, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to expose your sin. I'm going to expose your sin that building the tower and refusing to live by the commands that I've given you, that you will not fulfill the purpose, that you will not have the joy I intended you to have, not living in God's instruction. And what is God's instruction? It's instruction that promotes our flourishing would invite God's curse. Not living in God's instruction would invite God's curse. And people are always, people, people usually have something to say back. It's like, that's kind of mean, isn't it? Um, actually, no. Even inviting some kind of curse or discipline, I believe, can be seen as a blessing. Now, stay with me here. I'm not saying that we should be like, please curse me, please, please discipline me. No one says that. But when we receive it, we receive it, perhaps it is a discipline for my good. And this is uh, where, what I'm really trying to get at, is because if we were to truly receive the outcome and the results of our rebellion, what is that? It, again, it becomes Noah's flood. If we were to truly receive what we deserved, then it would be complete annihilation. By God giving us discipline, by God giving the people a curse, what is going on? What actually happened in this curse? What happened was God scattered them. What was scattering? Scattering was initially a blessing that he wanted them to have. He said, go, fulfill, subdue. Increase, multiply, scatter over all the earth. And when people weren't doing that, what they were doing is they were inviting destruction and annihilation. But through this 
curse, God scatters them. So through this discipline, God is teaching them, this is what I want you to do because this is good for you. And then we see that that's how language is developed. That's how people make nations today, right? Uh, one of the more difficult languages that I believe are in the, is, um, that exists is probably Chinese. And I was thinking to myself, if I, if I were to learn a language now, it's probably going to be Chinese. Because if I learn the hardest one, perhaps the other ones are easier. But uh, the older I get, the more I realize I'll just probably stick with English because I even have a tough time with Korean. And so, yeah, that, that's uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> what God is really showing is that there is a time to gather and that there is a time to scatter. And when we do it with him, it becomes an incredible blessing, an incredible blessing. This is where we turn to the reversal. You know, people will see that the Tower of Babel, oh, is this hor horrible, terrible thing. But it's a teaching moment. It's deeply profound. And I want us to really get this. The reversal of the Tower of Babel is mainly looked at in Acts chapter 2. A lot of people see it this way. It's because when, when Jesus said, please wait in Jerusalem, I don't think he said please, but he said wait in Jerusalem and uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you'll receive power, right? And then you'll go out into the world. Once they received the Holy Spirit, what happened? What happened was now they started proclaiming the good works, the glory of God in all the peoples that were listening, languages. Now this is so profound and deep because what didn't happen? If we say this is the reversal of ba Babel, the like the complete reversal of Babel in our own eyes, then what should have happened? Then once the Holy Spirit hit, we should have all just been speaking one language, English, right? We should have all just been speaking one language. But what didn't happen? That didn't happen. What happened was that when they received the Holy Spirit, when they spoke, all the people heard it in their native tongue. And when they heard it in their native tongue, they were like, wow, how is it possible that we can hear every single different tongue, but that we hear the good works of God. That's incredible. That's amazing. Why is this so important? Because this is the big question when we look at 9-11, when we look at these incredible events that happened in our lives, we ask, how or why could God allow such suffering? Why doesn't God completely take it away? Why doesn't God just press the reset button in our lives? And a lot of churches may go into this place where they really believe in healing. And I don't really want to rag on that. But I think they're kind of missing the big point. Because what I've heard in the past was, who's sick? Raise your hand. And if you're sick, God has a plan for you. His will is that you're healed. But what happens if 90% of those people aren't healed? And how many times have you been to I mean, a lot of us, we've grown up in the church. How many times have you been to a revival meeting or whatever you call it, a gathering, and then the pastor said, raise your hand, God wants you to be healed, and you weren't healed. How is that God's will? Why would God allow that? Why didn't God press the reset button? And I really want to get into the truth of this reversal. You know what true power is? True power isn't erasing your memory. 
so that you start over. You hear me? It's not erasing your past. It's taking your past, taking the pain, taking the things that the world did on you that was horrible, that was horrific, that were just life-altering, that you can never come back from. But God takes those things and He says, you know what? What other people intended for harm, I'm going to use it for your good. That's amazing. That's the true miracle. That's true healing. That I could take what was in the world's eyes is this horrible thing. But God would take it and say, I'm going to use that. And I'm going to use it for your good. Later on, we'll see someone in Genesis who says exactly this. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When Paul prayed, he prayed three times for this thorn to be removed. God, remove it. He saw miracle after miracle, more miracles than we'll probably ever see in our lifetime when he wrote that. But this is how, what he said after he prayed three times to remove the thorn. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Oswald Chambers says this, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Now that blew me away when I first read that by Oswald Chambers. Do you believe that God intends the best for you because he loves you? He loves you so much that he would send his only son so that you could be saved so that you could finally have a life that is fulfilled that is joyful that has hope that no one else can take away anymore nothing can rob you now no matter what happens no matter what happens to you god can change that and say you know what what other people intended for harm I'm going to make it good for you. That's power. That's love. That's incredible. That's the true miracle. I want to tell one last story as we end. In the terrible days of the Blitz, if you don't know what the Blitz is, it's short for Blitzkrieg. It's when the Germans bombed London for two years. A father holding... His small son, by his hand, ran from a building that had just been struck by a bomb. In the front yard was a shell hole. And seeking shelter as quickly as possible, the father jumped into the hole and held up his arms for his son to follow. Terrified, yet hearing his father's voice telling him to jump, the boy responded, but I can't see you. The father looked up against the sky, tinted red by burning buildings, called to the silhouette of his son but I can see you jump the boy jumped because he trusted his father the Christian faith enables us to face life or meet death 
not because we can see with the certain certainty that we are, but we have certainty that we are seeing. Not that we know all the answers, but we know that we are known. You know what we really have to realize is sometimes tomorrow is scary. Sometimes we have to jump into that hole. But the amazing thing is the hands that are reaching out of that hole are nail-pierced hands that we recognize as our Savior saying, it's okay. I jump first and I want you to follow me. And it's because we recognize those hands that we are able to jump and follow God. He has a great plan for you. He desires it and it gives him glory. It is not for despair that he intended your life to be, but it is for hope. It is for joy. It is for love. That's why my brothers and sisters, we are called to follow him with every fiber of our being. Let's pray. God, we admit to you now that our natural tendency is to be prideful, is to hold on to something that is temporal and not eternal. But Lord God, we know that it is because you opened the eyes of the blind. It is because you came down here onto this earth first and lived that perfect life that we have a hope that is just incredible, amazing. And so, Lord, we want to lift up our lives to you. We want to trust in you. We want our daily lives to reflect you, O oh God. Be with us as we turn to you, Lord, turn to us. Let's take this time to meditate and pray on the message today. That our God is a God who gives us hope. Our God is a God who can take anything any evil that anybody had intended for us and change it for our good. Let's pray.